Welcome on in to Studio 2. I'm Avdi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Back after a Thanksgiving break. Avi, how did you enjoy your holiday? I had a wonderful time. It was lovely. You want details? Oh, no. I just, you know, wanted to make sure, you know, Hannah didn't disappoint with those pies. (laughs) Pie was good. Chocolate was the winner this year in my book. All right. Yours was good. It was very good. Fantastic. And... You know, coming back now, you know, winter is a, is here. I felt it. Did you feel it? In my bones. Yeah, in my bones. And did you catch this morning's snow shower? I, I literally was caught in it. I didn't just catch it. I was caught in it. It was well, lovely, actually. Well, today we will find out why chilly weather doesn't have to change our workout plans. They're going to have to convince me. <laughs> there are benefits to exercising in the cold, Avi, and... It is all about doing it the right way. Do you like a winter workout? Call us. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. Looking forward to that segment. And before we get there, Cherry, some news broke over the weekend about the shooting of three students of Palestinian descent in Burlington, Vermont. One of the victims goes to Haverford College right here in our area. Mm-hmm. At this time, it appears all three will survive, but many people are wondering if this was a crime motivated by hate and if it's part of the recent rise we've seen in suspected hate crimes. Later in this segment, we're going to talk with a Temple University criminal justice professor. Um, and then later in the hour, Cherry. Yeah, our very own Matt Gillum investigates a Philly typewriter shop that could Make an interesting holiday gift. Remember those? The things? whole shop? Yeah. Well, not the shop, the actual <laughs> typewriter. Um, and But first, we got the shovels. You know it. Uh-huh. For snow. For snow. Back to snow. Yeah. We're looping back to snow here. Yeah, so uh, I mentioned I was caught in this lovely little snow squall this morning as I was passing through yeah, Washington Square Ooh. on my walk to work. It was magical. And I will tell you, I was actually listening to a Christmas song. Um, on Spotify that mentioned like the Aww. weather starting to feel like snow and the snow started. It was really on like cue. cosmic. Yeah, on, on cue. cue. Wow. Um, we have, however, reached a period, uh, records for the longest period without an inch of snow here in Philadelphia. 668 wow. days. You recall last winter there was like no mm-hmm. measurable snow. Mm-hmm. The past three winters, however, and if you're a snow fan, this is good news. The past three winters were... La Nina, which generally leads to drier, warmer weather. This year is El Nino, which usually means wetter and snowier winters. So perhaps this year we will finally get a little bit of snowfall. Yeah, weather predictions suggest our region could get about 25 inches this season. I'll take it. Um, not a ton, but still more than in recent years. I kind of like that. The The factoid that stuck out to me, though, okay. was um, PennDOT yes. made records spreading a mere 10,383 tons of salt in the Philadelphia region, including our neighboring counties. That is the, the 10-year average is just under 90,000 tons. So we've only, we only did in the last year 10,000 tons. So that's okay. a very small number, and that's the record for the, one of the lowest amounts of salt. You know, the spread. So they should the have road. a lot of salt this year. They have a ton. They it's probably have tons. Up. Yeah. The silos are bursting. Tons of salt. So I, I will say this. I'm kind of happy about the cold. 
I like I like a little chill. I like the first cold. By yeah. the time you get to the fifth and tenth cold, it's not so. You like no, or yeah. the extra inches. Of snow. But I will say, mm-hmm. just give me one snowstorm a year. That's what Aww. I need. I just want one time. I want to look out in my world and it's see beautiful. it blanketed Until in it's that not. beautiful. Yeah, yeah get that. <laughs> it's that first moment though. That's what you want every year. Once to have that kind of magic. Yeah, before it gets dirty. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And it so. does. Take and, us to um, uh, Jersey now. Yeah, Cyber Monday was yesterday sure was. big day for mega retailer amazon i know i did some online shopping but employees at the amazon fulfillment center in west Deptford they organized a walkout to demand better pay and working conditions they used the day to shine the light on some of their issues um so employees spoke about mandatory overtime requirements as well as an amazon practice to keep folks seasonal for long periods of time um, because your time as a seasonal employee doesn't count towards pay raises and things like Interesting. that. Interesting. So according to the Inquirer, those protesting, they make about 19 bucks an hour. They want $25 an hour plus a $2 bonus per hour for peak time. Mm. And all of this is a part of a larger organizing effort within Amazon, organizing committees. And, you know, they want to make sure that they don't get retaliated against from Amazon because right. there's been allegations of that. Amazon, of course, did not respond to a request from the Inquirer to comment about this. But, yeah. you know, just a re- reminder, Avi, that there are people behind all of our shopping, right? And this has been percolating for a while. Yeah. Um, people will recall likely that there was a successful unionizing effort at a facility in Staten Island in yep, New York. Yep. And at the time, there was a lot of speculation that this could set off sort of a union Change wave yeah. at Amazon facilities. That hasn't quite come to bear mm-hmm. yet. There have actually been some pretty significant defeats in places like Alabama and upstate New York. So I feel like that's kind of an open question. Is, is there going to be sort of a mass wave of unionization at these Amazon facilities and facilities like it? Or will the Staten Island thing end up being kind of an aberration? Mm-hmm. As you can tell, the movement is still working. They're yeah. still they're still trying to try to create some momentum. The question is, will it lead to some results in the coming years? Just to st- I think it's a big story to watch. I think it's it the next it's is. the next front of unionization potentially because Amazon is growing. We have a, huge a, a number of fulfillment centers in our region. Um, they're hiring more people. They used to have a lot of turnover, but now they're kind of focused on keeping people because mm-hmm. the business is growing, and you kind of have to retain some of these employees. So we'll see how things change. As um, Am- I mean, Amazon's not going anywhere from what, you know, you or I can tell, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So. Here's what's not growing. <sighs> Goodness. The love between. <laughs> oh, Darryl- that's a good one. Yeah, it was all right. Uh, give it a C. Mm-hmm. Uh, the love between Philly music legends Daryl Hall and John Oates. You might have heard last week that Hall is suing Oates in mm. a Nashville court. We did not originally know why there was this conflict between one of within one of Philadelphia's most successful musical acts of all time. Um, But we now have some details, and they're not the full details of the lawsuit, but it does appear that the conflict is that Oates wants to sell off some parts of the catalog that he has some control over, and Hall wants to stop this from happening. He Mm -hmm. wants to sell them to a a group called Primary Wave, I believe. And as this has emerged, this legal conflict has emerged, people have been maybe revisiting exactly what the nature of their Mm -hmm. relationship is because the music is so darn beautiful. It is. Um, But but here is actually a clip of Daryl Hall last year uh, on a podcast hosted by Bill Maher talking about the duo's relationship. I don't have a partner. 
we we made records called Hall and Oates together, but we do we we've always been very separate, and, and it's it's a really important thing for me. <laughs> but you certainly weren't separate on the records. We were separate on the records too. What does that mean? I, I, I'm not hearing you know what song, I love about you. Know that you. song, "Kiss" on my list. Of course, that's all me. That's okay. all me on those harmonies. That's me. I won't go any farther than that. That's all him. That's all him. Look, <laughs> <laughs> that comment sounded like they were definitely not friends. Um, to me, I, I, neither party has to commented. You, how could on, anyone interpret yeah, it otherwise? But yes. neither party has commented on the case publicly at this point. Mm -hmm. But it seemed like to me they definitely not friends. Hadn't been for a long time when you're making comments like that on a podcast. But to me, they're still trying to make money because I checked their Twitter account or X account, the Daryl Hall and John Oates at Hall Oates um, account posted. <laughs> I don't know what you're about on to say. Friday, uh -huh. the Friday after Thanksgiving. They're promoting their vinyl reissue of Home for Christmas. So they're trying <laughs> to sell. Look, they try to make sure that when this battle is over, they got some cash, cash dollar bills oh, there. So they're it's they're shocking. definitely like trying to make money here. But at the same time, you know, you hope that you know uh, you'll see what happens money here. gets in the way of everything though yeah. yeah it's it's so odd hall suing it's like bert suing er, ernie yeah salt suing pepper <laughs> you know they sun suing the clouds they go together i could see actually salt suing pepper but we, 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 we don't know we don't know but you're yeah, interesting Ooh, oh i can't go for that yeah well done producers thank I you i like that and um but one thing i think you know a lot of folks can go for a hot dog you like hot dogs often <laughs> Uh yeah. yeah, I'm trying a vegetarian thing right now, but generally, yeah, yeah I, I do like hot dogs. Well, a beloved hot dog vendor on South Street has retired after 45 years of serving Frank's meatballs and pretzels at Fifth and South. Gus Hot Dogs has been a tradition since 1978. It says so on the side of the little food truck there. Gus's um, Hot Dogs. And Gus has been said by regulars to have a lot of personality, <laughs> but he, he uh, announced on um, Facebook, or at least the announcement was on Facebook, in a pretty low-key way. It said, it's with mixed feelings that Gus made the decision to retire over the weekend. Now, hopefully, he can figure out what, quote, relax means. And he's been doing this for 45 years. Put your feet up, Gus. Put your feet up, Turn Gus. off the grill. Yeah. And shout out to Billy Penn Food and Bev reporter Ali Mosin for doing this story. I love stories like this. Yeah. Uh, I I can't say I ever enjoyed one of Gus's either. hot dogs or meatballs, but I do recall passing the cart many, mm -hmm. many times uh, walking down South Street or passing through. And uh, I like that there's also a petition oh, yeah. to rename that, that corner cute. of South Street as Gus's Corner. By the way, we don't even know Gus's last name, but maybe we'd figure that out before they renamed the corner. You don't need to know uh, his last name. <laughs> just call it Gus Corner. <laughs> yeah, Gus's Corner. Wouldn't it be lovely if- And that's like, such a Philly way to honor somebody, too. Wouldn't it be great if every corner was just named after someone who was like there for a long time, lived there, had a business there for a long time? Here's Pete's corner. Here's Cheryl's corner. Just name Look, every corner. I have been to a lot of street renamings, and uh, we're getting close. <laughs> <laughs> to every corner. <laughs> so yeah. maybe we it might be. It. it might end up being that way one day. We'll All see. right. Well, shifting gears, uh, mm -hmm. you have likely read the disturbing headlines out of Burlington, Vermont. According to authorities there, three college students of Palestinian descent were walking down the street when a gunman approached them and, without speaking, fired several shots at the trio. One of the victims, Kanan Abdul Hamid, is a student right here in our region at Haverford College. The accused gunman has pleaded not guilty to three counts of attempted second-degree murder, 
The three victims, we are told, will survive, and this is not yet being classified as a hate crime. But Jewish and Palestinian communities are on edge since the war between Israel and Hamas began. So we want to talk about hate crimes, especially in light of a recent wave of anti-Semitic and Islamophobic incidents across the country. Joining us now is Stephen Windish. He is a criminal justice professor at Temple University and has studied domestic terrorism and political violence. Stephen, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks for having me. So Stephen, I want to start by sort of asking um, how something that is happening thousands of miles away can manifest itself right here when many of the people involved have really nothing to do with what is going on in in the Gaza war? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think if we were to look at this as a snapshot, it might seem random, but I liked your word earlier, percolating. Mm-hmm. I think we have to look at what's happening today as something that isn't random, that follows a cycle of contention. Mm-hmm. And we can look through, whether it's 9-11 back to 2001, 2016 with the Muslim ban, these things linger. These Mm -hmm. things persist. Just because somebody may be out of office or may be in the war on terror, those resentments, those animosities, they kind of fester, especially in a multicultural society where you have changing demographics, you got changing political landscapes, international conflict. All of those things can manifest in very violent and negative ways. And so we can't really view this as like coming out of left field necessarily. But these kinds of ideologies can persist. And you don't have to be a member of a hate group to fall in line with this. Mm-hmm. We all have social identities, right? Whether mm-hmm. we're an Eagles fan or a Chiefs fan, whatever it may be. When those social identities are threatened, we can respond in a couple of different ways. We can either abandon our social identity and adopt a new one. We can distance ourselves from it. Or in the, hate, in the situation with hate crimes, we can resort to violence and kind of enforce it. Because mm. our social identities are often connected to our self-esteem. So whether it's religion, race, sexual orientation, when somebody threatens our social identity, they are indirectly threatening your self-esteem. When you say threaten, a perceived threat, I mean, what does threaten mean in that context? Yeah, it could be perceived threat. It could be literal threat like uh, intimidation, violence, mm-hmm. or it could be symbolic threats. Um, you know, if we think about like anti-Semitic violence, we know that there are religious customs that kind of drive individuals of the Jewish faith. And so they may practice certain dietary restrictions. You don't have to necessarily commit direct violence against them in terms of you know, beatings or killings. It could be a symbolic violence, like spray painting a swastika on a cemetery. Or I've seen one recently where um, uh, pork was put into somebody's mailbox and knowing that individuals of the Jewish faith don't eat pork. Um, and so it doesn't have to necessarily be direct violence, but it can have these kinds of larger message crimes. That's really the core with the hate crime is it's a message crime. It not only impacts the individual that's mm-hmm. the victim of the crime, but also those in their social networks like family and friends, members of the community they may belong to, as well as society. I mean, here we are talking about this, right? And everybody's been talking about this across the country because we're all aware of the social identity and the message associated with that kind of violence. Because, but there's a big range before you, because I want you to sort of define what a hate crime is, but then there's a lot that comes before you get to actual criminal activity because it starts with like a bias incident. Can you give us a range of, you know, where it goes from thought to some kind of action, but it doesn't always have to be criminal, right? Yeah, I think I think starting with what a hate crime is important, right? So a hate crime is actually a sentence enhancement. So you have to commit a crime. So it could be rape, 
murder, arson, intimidation, okay? Anything that's on the books could be a hate crime. It has to be against a member of a protected group, Mm -hmm. so uh, somebody with race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity. That's going to vary by state, so it's it's actually really frustrating because we kind of have 51 hate crime laws. We have all 50 states have their own, and then the federal government has kind of its own. Um, And then the last element of a hate crime is it has to be motivated by bias. Um, so that could be homophobia, racism, xenophobia, any any phobia, right? Mm-hmm. Any ism can can technically uh, account for that. Uh, but determining whether it's motivated by that, that's really the hardest part in most of these crimes because there's all these other kinds of factors that are at play. If somebody was robbed during the commission of the crime or if uh, there's maybe a prior relationship between the offender and the victim, that can go down as a simple assault or an, a personal dispute. Uh, and so, so what holds up in court? Like what's the type of evidence that investigators would look for that would lead them to to add that charge? Yeah, it could be it could range from maybe a, a tattoos that have certain ideological pinnings to them. 88 uh, is a numeric code in the white supremacist movement, stands for Hail Hitler. So if somebody has an 88 tattoo, that could be indication mm-hmm. of their membership. Uh, comments, slurs, gestures made during the commission of the crime. Uh, other things that we refer to as prior act evidence. So these would be social media posts that would be suggestive of the deep state or a new world order or the great replacement, which are conspiracy theories within the white supremacist movement, uh, maybe anti-government rhetoric. And so, you know, in the case of the the Palestinian students, like they're scrubbing Jason Eaton's social media. Right, this to, is the accused gunman. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, to see kind of what ideologies and what kind of rhetoric he might have had. To your point about the progression Mm -hmm. from uh, kind of extremist beliefs to extremist actions, we can view this as like an iceberg, like the the tip of the iceberg that we see out of the water. Those are the people that commit violence. The vast majority of the individuals that hold these radical beliefs are underneath the water. They they are hiding in plain sight. They're our neighbors. They're our friends and stuff like that. Uh, And so what it takes for somebody to transition from I hold these extremist beliefs, so I need to commit these extremist actions. It could be a number of things. I mean, it could be uh, socialization early in childhood. It can be indoctrination with these extremist beliefs. It could be, you know, just a random spark. Maybe they got divorced. Maybe they were fired. Maybe they were, you know, online and they were just immersed in this extremist Mm. propaganda. And really what it comes down to is a sense of helplessness, a sense of uh, there's no other option. This needs to be done because I'm being threatened you know my 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 way of life doesn't have a Hmm. future and so i have to take action because nobody else is and i want to piggyback on what avi asked about just sort of like the evidence i want to talk about prosecution of some of these hate incidents they're not easy i mean i've read you know especially you know we had a wave of uh, anti-asian attacks previously and um it was so difficult for anyone to prove because people don't typically run up to you say a slur and then hit you you know or or Mm. commit a crime so you know how hard is it to get these enhancements and what's been the success rate yeah yeah that's so difficult with these because you know the vast majority, I'd say about 60% of hate crimes are committed against a person, the other 40% against property. Mm-hmm. The property crimes are so hard to charge because there's really no offender and no victim. It's it's kind of mm. like somebody spray painted a swastika, they ran away. So like, what do you have to go in terms of mm-hmm. evidence other than the swastika on the building? Those that are committed against people, there's a huge underreporting issue where victims are fearful to report. They think there's going to be secondary victimization, retribution. I mean, even shame. They might think that they're being blamed. 
And what it right. most resembles is like sexual assault. So the victim is so apprehensive to come forward. They think that somebody's going to say, well, what did you do to cause this? You know, and then they have to go through kind of re-trauma right. of that event and telling it and, you know, explaining where they were at and why this occurred to them. So investigators are already at a disadvantage because they don't have anybody telling them what happened. In addition to that, we have a lot of issues within law enforcement where there may not be clear definitions. So these law enforcement officers are trying to investigate these crimes, but they aren't clear whether what is bias motivation and mm-hmm. how does my department classify this? Are we viewing this as a simple assault? Are we viewing this as aggravated assault? And so they're not getting the proper training that they may need. Uh, the last I checked, only 12 states require hate crime training for their police academies. Mm-hmm. The others kind of folded in within the other traffic right tickets and stuff like that. Right. It's not like a separate module. Um, and then with on, on top of that, there's like limited resources, limited funds that they have available to it. And so when they come to prosecute this, they're looking for things at the crime scene, witnesses, you know, any kind of evidence that might be there. And, and a lot of these crimes, that stuff's just not present for them to be there. And they're trying to get into the offender's mindset, yeah. which is another That's very really difficult, difficult to thing to do. Yeah, right? What's in your heart? What's in your brain? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes those things are not documented. Um, Stephen, I also wanted to ask you what the purpose, the societal purpose of these enhancements are. You mentioned that it's not a standalone charge. It's something that you add on top of an already accused or committed crime. Why do we need that type of enhancement? And from a sentencing perspective, what does it do? That's a great question. I mean, this is kind of the debate because there's a there's one aspect of this that's saying that hate crimes are redundant. Mm-hmm. We're already punishing you for murder mm-hmm. or rape. So why add the enhancement to it? And a lot of research has come out recently that suggests that these hate crimes hurt more for the victims. And we can use a a scenario here. If you are parked in your car and you leave the keys in it, windows rolled down, somebody steals your car. You can kind of process that and say, oof, I shouldn't have done that, right? Right. That was kind of silly. I kind of, you know, yeah, you shouldn't have stole my car, but I kind of made it too easy for you to steal my car. When it comes to hate crimes, it's so interchangeable. If you are a, a member of the Jewish faith or if you're black or if you're homosexual, there's nothing you can do to change your identity, right? And so you are at the wrong place the wrong time. And that psychological uh, mindset is so different. You can't process the crime in the same way as a victim. You can't make sense of it. How do you how do you target harden? How do you protect yourself in the future? You can't take off your race. You right. can't take off your sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. So depression, anxiety, um, uh, paranoia, fear. Harder for the victims to cope. That's right. That research suggests that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then from a societal standpoint, mm-hmm. I think we have, to, we have to see that there's a certain level of justice. There's a certain message that the government mm-hmm. has to show we care. We care when these victims are being perpetrated against. Because anyway. you, you have said before, I want to read this quote from, from you, these crimes are unique in the fact that they affect both the primary victim of the attack as well as erode the basic fabric of our society, suggesting there is a ripple effect That's right. for these types of crimes. That's right. And and my question is sort of like, is this phenomenon contagious? And in two ways. Um, first, um, as we hear about hate crimes, does it make more likely that additional hate crimes will occur, but also as, you know, like these three students, they, you know, revealed themselves because a lot of people don't want folks to know that they were their identities, right? So that um, does it, you know, when you see more people reporting, does it also make, you know, it easier and to, to report a crime? 
Yeah, I think we we have to we can't shy away from bringing attention to this. Like that's one of my first and only not only but one of my first policy recommendations is more public awareness. Mm-hmm. I teach a class on hate crimes for students at Temple, and many of them have no idea what a hate crime is, and they come out of this much more aware of mm-hmm. the line between just generic criminal offending and how this is an enhancement to it. And I, I love that because then they can go out and they can share that with their friends and kind of create a ripple effect in a positive way by bringing awareness that this exists and this is different qualitatively from other con, uh, types of crime. The the fear that somebody might see a hate crime and want to mimic it is always real. I'm not suggesting that that would uh, not be the case. I don't think that that's something that we should worry about, especially if the criminal justice system works the way that we we hope it does. If there are hate crimes that occur in this situation with Jason Eaton and he's punished and apprehended and that message is sent of intolerance from the government, it hopefully will deter other individuals from acting in the same way because they will see, hey, this is going to happen and I'm going to get you know, an additional charge against me um, you know, for, for committing this, this uh, act of hate. And uh, uh, returning to something I think we discussed a little bit earlier, if they indeed enhance the charges, in this case or any case, adding the, that hate crime enhancement, um, does that make it more likely that the person will serve, say, the maximum amount mm-hmm. in the sec- sentencing guidelines? Like, how does that work? Yeah, it's so uh, uh, very frustrating because it's state by state. And then even within that, the way that our criminal justice system works is um, there are certain offenses that will have, you know, one year or less with a $2,000 fine between one year and five years with a $10,000 fine and then anything over five years. So the enhancement is going to be proportional to whatever that is. Uh, so it, it's just like you don't even it know. It depends on the base it's crime. T- exactly. And like this is this is where the district attorney and the prosecuting attorney have so much jurisdiction and power because whatever charge that they bring to the case is going to dictate the enhancement that's proportional to it. And this varies. So a sexual assault in Vermont and a sexual assault in California, if there's a hate crime enhancement in California, it's a life sentence. In Vermont, it's a five-year additional enhancement. So it oh. just like it's it, it could be the exact same crime, but in two different states, they're going to throw the book at you two different ways. Wow. Yeah. And I just want to talk about advice because these enhancements are one of the ways people try to deter. You talked about awareness. Um, are there things that individuals can do to try to help you know, quell some of this hate that we see or some of these incidents? What can individuals do? And we have about a minute and a half. Yeah, I think it starts at the community level because I, I think the better that we can create relationships with our with our local community members and law enforcement so that we feel like the, the, the symbiotic relationship between those that are kind of policing ourselves, create that collective efficacy within our neighborhoods, as well as trust within the law, within law enforcement is the first line of defense. When a crime occurs, we can feel... Um, I guess, empowered to go to law enforcement that they're going to care. And if there isn't somebody there, maybe it's a local church, maybe it's a local um, social work network or something like that, uh, that can report this. The more data that we have, the better we will be able to pinpoint where these things occur. And we can tailor our kind of counter messaging, our proactive measures to these communities. Um, A lot of these hate crimes you know, are occurring in people's residence. Like the vast majority, it's, it's really interesting to see a lot of the spike in college campuses because only about 10% of hate crimes occur on college campuses. I think it was almost 30% or when in people's homes and in their neighborhoods. So it has to start in the community level uh, or else, you know, we're going to be at a disadvantage. That is uh, Stephen Windish, criminal justice professor at Temple University. Thank you so much for the time today on Studio 2. Thank you very much. Coming up, Avi, exercising in the winter. We'll get the do's and don'ts. Give us a call, 
9499 or email studio2 at whyy.org. We'll be right back. Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? All right, you weekend warriors. Welcome <laughs> back to Studio 2. I'm Avi wolfman Aaron. I'm Cherry Gregg. I feel like running up some steps. I wonder why. Yeah. When the weather turns cold, like today, the idea of walking or taking a a jog outside, it's a little bit daunting. You have to put on a million layers, it seems, and it takes a long time to warm up. It's a lot easier to just curl up on the couch with a blanket, some cocoa, and of course, you know, Netflix, some Hulu there. I don't even think we need to do the segment now. Let's just do that. <laughs> curl up on the blanket with some cocoa. All right, I know. We have to work out. This mm-hmm. all comes at a time, and most of us are sampling a few too many holiday treats, cookies, cakes, candies, drinks. Yum, yum. So we thought we would get the scoop on winter exercise. Is it good for us to work out in the cold? What should we think about before venturing out? And even if you are hitting the gym or treadmill at home, how do you maintain your motivation during these dark winter months? Good questions. We are going to ask that of Katie Hunzinger, a professor of exercise science at Thomas Jefferson University, who joins us now to answer all of our questions and yours. Welcome to Studio Two. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. What do you do in the winter to stay fit? Maybe you got some advice for us or a few questions. Call us, 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. So, Katie, I really like to walk. I live near trails, and during the you know summer, spring, fall months, I get out there, I'm going. But on a day like today, my nose is running. My fingers hurt. I want you to explain to all of our listeners and myself what is happening to your body when it's cold that to me it feels like it hurts a little bit more can you can you break this down for us right absolutely so uh you're not wrong it it does hurt right it's cold um you know and so our body has a homeostasis it has a temperature it wants to be and so when it's too hot that's why we start sweating when it's too cold that's why we start to shiver and so your body is trying to keep that heat in and so that's why we tend to shiver um, our heart rate kind of increases, our blood pressure increases, and you said your fingers hurt, your toes hurt, you know, that's nose be- running. your I'm nose like, is yeah. running, right? Yeah. <laughs> so those mucous membranes get going. So all of that is your body is trying to constrict and keep that heat in. And so that's what causes the nose to run a little bit. Um, whether you have a cold or not, or a stuffy nose or not, it's just inherently going to start running because of that vasoconstriction. And then uh, your fingers and ears and toes start to hurt because your body is kind of in fight or flight mode and survival. And it says, we got to keep the vital organs warm, you know, divert all blood flow toward the organs to the brain. And so the extremities kind of get the short end of that stick. And that's why the fingers start to get cold and numb and tingly. And, you know, when you think frostbite, that's what goes first mm-hmm. is the fingers, toes, the tips of the ears, um, just because the, all the blood gets pulled away from there. Huh. Okay. That's good background. <laughs> Let's go from runny noses now mm-hmm. to runny people. Mm-hmm. How do I prepare for a, like a, a run in the cold? Like when I walk out of the house, should I feel cold to start so that I'm going to warm up? Should I feel comfortable to start? Or does that you know risk me being like too hot? 
what should I feel like as I step out the door and prepare for my little 5K? Absolutely. So the best answer is do what's best for you, right? You know, mm-hmm. there's, you know, unfortunately in exercise and health and medicine, the answer always is it depends. Um, <laughs> it's not a great answer and I apologize, but um, it's really whatever works best for you. A lot of people tend to prefer to do their warm up inside and stay warm beforehand. So then they just kind of hit the ground running outside. Um, some people want to brace the cold and start their warm up outside. Um, but in reality, no matter what way you do it, you should always warm up. Um, The example I give is that your body is a machine. It's like a car, right? Mm -hmm. So if your car's parked outside overnight, it's minus 20 degree wind chill. Are you going to get in the car, turn it on and just hit the gas and go 65 miles per hour down I-95? Probably not, right? You you know, you're going to let the engine run a little, let the car get nice and warm inside, put your seat heater on, and then you know slowly accelerate up to 60 miles per hour. And so it's the same thing we want to do with our body. And so um, we want to slowly build uh, that body temperature, that core temperature in transition from rest to exercise. And so that's doing five to 10 minutes of warming up before we exercise. Is that uh, stretching? Is that dynamic stretching? Yeah, how, how am I getting warm warmed up, up here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, really anything that's going to mimic the movement you're going to do. So you said you like to walk. So maybe walking at a slower pace and maybe doing some dynamic stretches. And so what I mean by dynamic stretching is moving the joints in the in the extremities through you know, the active range of motion and slowly increasing that range of motion. So these are things like you've probably seen athletes do it on football games when you're watching the Eagles. Um, you know, so they're doing high knees and, and mm-hmm. bringing their knee to their chest. They're doing butt kickers or skips or lunges with a twist. Just slow movements, nothing too crazy or ballistic, but slowly just kind of moving those joints through the range of motion, increasing that muscle contractile um, ability um, improving that range of motion and just getting that blood flowing. Um, and then just so really not just reaching down and touching your toes. Yeah. And so that's yeah. that we try to reserve for actually after exercise. Mm-hmm. That static stretching is what you're talking mm-hmm. about, reaching down and touching your toes. And really the benefit of that is to try to improve our flexibility. Um, and so we want to do that when the muscles are warm and it's a great way to cool down post exercise. So to slowly decrease that heart rate. Um, after exercise and reduce the risk of any post-exercise cardiovascular complications as well. So, Katie, I want you to kind of make the argument for all those people who are just like, you know what, I'm going to exercise inside. They don't, they, they've stopped their run because it's so cold. Um, is it better to just push through and, and exercise in the cold? I mean, do you burn more? I, I did read that you bur- you could burn more calories, so I'm going to throw that out there. But make the case for folks saying, you know what, don't stop it just because, don't stop your routine just because it's cold. I like that. Yeah, don't stop your routine uh, to an extent, you know, don't stop exercising. Yeah, <laughs> and so yeah. that's the answer that I'm going to stick with. So if you have the ability to go on the treadmill and you're okay running on the treadmill for five out, five <laughs> miles, you know, more power to yeah. you. I, I don't have that patience, you know, so I will brave the cold. But, you know, if you have those resources and accessibility to you to um, work out inside throughout the cold winter mm-hmm. months, by all means, do that. If you don't have that privilege, you know, the best thing you can do is to keep moving. The worst thing you can do is just to stop your program, mm-hmm. stop being active, because you're going to lose all those benefits that you gain from exercise. And so the best thing you can do is just keep moving, whether it's, you know, 30 minutes of walking three times a week or just small amounts or a two-mile run, a one-mile run, and just kind of getting out Side, seeing the sunlight, you know, trying to starve off that um, seasonal affect disorder yeah. that we all yeah, get, especially yeah. with uh, daylight savings and the darkness right now. We have an email here from Ben. 
because uh, we talked a little bit about uh, finger pain earlier. But Ben says, I'm a casual runner. In the winter, when running outdoors, you get out of breath, and the air is really sharp on your lungs. Okay, what's up with that? Uh, is that's that's a real thing, right? Mm-hmm. That, this is not invented by Ben. I think I felt this <laughs> phenomenon before. What's going on in our lungs when that cold air air gets in there? Yeah, so it typically happens with the cold air, or sometimes when you're really pushing yourself to the limit. Um, you know, I go to a CrossFit gym; they typically aren't heated, and so you get two birds with one stone. With that, you're pushing yourself to the limit <laughs> in the cold air. It's, yeah. it's really lovely, and so you'll you'll you're making a great pitch by the exactly, way. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <That> gym, <laughs> and so. Um, you know, and so really what that is, is people tend to get that like metallic taste in their mouth. Mm-hmm. They'll say they taste pennies or they taste blood. And so what's happening is we're exerting ourselves, And so we have this forced cold air um, inhalation and this can mm-hmm. irritate our airways. Um, it increases pressure inside the lungs and it causes our red blood cells um, to leak into the small air sacs. And so it um, results in maybe little um, minor tears and some inflammation. Nothing terrible that it's going to damage you for life or right. forever. I'm not getting scarred. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so it causes these little micro tears and these red blood cells to leak. And those red blood cells have hemoglobin on it. Mm. And that hemoglobin um, attaches to an iron. And so that's what you're tasting. Is. So huh. people are uh, like, I get the, I taste pennies or it feels like I've got blood in my mouth. And you kind of do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, micro not, but not yeah. like a visible. Exactly. Yeah. And so if you're trying to prepare to go out, what should you exactly wear? Because mm-hmm. Avi sort of talked about like, how do you, you know, how you should feel. But what what are the best things to wear if you're going to go shopping? Or are you given a, a gift to encourage someone to go out and do some winter exercise? What yeah. what are the, the what are the best ways to layer and prepare yourself so that you can um, get through your entire workout. That's exactly right. Yeah, you you want to be over-prepared and not under-prepared, right? Mm-hmm. You can always take off a layer. You can't add a layer if you don't have a layer to add. And so um, with the uh, breathing, for instance, we recommend things like wearing um, like a balaclava or a little gaiter over your mouth because mm-hmm. that helps just keeping um, that warm, humid air um, helps humidify the air as it enters the body, oh, and so it's not as dry mm-hmm. and cold um, because when we are respiring and breathing out, we lose that humidity to the air. And so I like to you little know, greenhouse right around your mouth. Exactly. Right yeah. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> little microclimate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so you know, I always tell people like, you know, you're dressing to run. You're not dressing for fashion. And so you know, <laughs> you're trying to stay warm. So having a good base layer that's going to wick sweat away from the body because you're still going to sweat, even though it's not hot. You're still burning energy and burning calories, and that produces heat. And we have to cool our bodies with sweat. And so you want that moisture wicking base layer. You know, something like a um, like an Under Armour kind of material. Yeah. So mm-hmm. not like a cotton exactly. shirt. No cotton. Oh, okay. no, no cotton. cotton. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. cotton. <laughs> Sorry, you cotton. feel great, but this is not for you. It's yeah, for this the summer. Is... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so having that moisture wicking is going to help. And then, you know, having several layers, because again, you can always take off mm-hmm. um, as your body warms up. And, you know, anything that's really going to help um, block air movement, but allow that water vapor from sweating to escape. Um, you can actually look it up. There's a, I think the U.S. Army created it. Um, it's called a CLO value, C-L-O, and it will actually rate the insulating capacity of oh. the material. And so things like long Clo pajamas. I'm going to drop that in the yeah. conversation Let's take a note. right now. Yeah, yeah. so um, things like, um, you know, long johns, uh, turtlenecks, flannels, overalls, parkas, mm-hmm. um, 
those are really great. Um, they tend to have the highest because they're very insulating. And so those are things you want on your outer layer, right? You know, that's why you wear the parka last. And then more importantly, you know, again, we talked about it covering those ears and covering that head because you lose a lot of heat through your head um, just because it's um, got a lot of capillaries and blood vessels up there. And then, <clears throat> excuse me. And then something that we don't think about, but I think about because I'm a I'm a day walker. You know, I've got red hair and, and pale skin and blue <laughs> eyes. And uh, as it starts to get a little snowier out, um, that snow is going to reflect up the sun. And so yeah. thinking about wearing sunglasses or maybe some eye protection, that's why you see skiers and snowboarders wear goggles as well, because that reflection uh, chapstick to um, prevent mm-hmm. sunburn on the on the lips. And then always, always, always any skin that's going to be exposed you know, wear something with some SPF in it as well. Because you think in the winter you don't need your SPF, but you do. That's exactly it, especially with the sun reflecting off the snow. Just a minute left, Katie. I got to ask, though. Um, I think a lot of people think that exercising in maybe extreme heat or extreme cold has some sort of benefit that exercising in normal conditions doesn't have. Is there any truth to that? We have about 45 seconds. You got it. All right, 45 seconds, sprint to the finish. So (laughs) anytime you have an extreme environment, whether it's really hot or really cold, your body is going to work to get back to homeostasis. So inherently, you will burn slightly more energy than you would in like a thermoneutral or a, you know, ambient, healthy ambient temperature area. Now, is that going to be the difference between, you know, you looking like a Greek god or goddess at spring break and, you know, having the dad bod? The is marginal is what I hear you say. That's exactly it. It's probably not the fish to fry. No hot yoga for me. There it is. I like that. I like that range. Dad bod, Greek god. Like, it's somewhere in between. I know which end of the spectrum I'm on. That is Katie Hunzinger, assistant professor of exercise science at Thomas Jefferson University. Thank you so much for joining us on Studio 2. Thank you so much. And up next, Mac Gillum takes us behind the scenes at a local small business. Their specialty, typewriters. We'll be right back. (laughs) All the way home I'll be warm The fire is slowly dying and my dear, we're still goodbye. As long as you love me so, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at PennMedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You are listening to Studio 2. Welcome back. I'm Terry Gregg. You sure are listening to Studio 2. <laughs> Hello, I'm Avi wolfman Eric. After Thanksgiving, the rush of the holidays kicks into high gear. You got your parties, your decorations, more food. Food, food. (laughs) And, of course, shopping. Did you make it through Black Friday, Cyber Monday? Well, in all the hubbub, you may have missed Small Business Saturday. That's the day for people to support local shops. Well, WHYY's Matt Gillum was pounding the pavement on Saturday and stopped by a local merchant whose shop was buzzing with customers, all sampling their unusual offering, typewriters. Matt stepped inside Philly Typewriter to find out why so many people were interested in these 
archaic machines. <laughs> One of the people standing in the brick-lined showroom on East Pass Young is Rutgers University professor Amy Jordan. As she mills around with her family, she spots something sitting on a desk in the corner, an old friend. I had that typewriter. What did you write on it? Your dissertation? No. I wrote my dissertation on a computer, but I did write all my college papers on this. I think I was electric. She decides to sample the wares and sits down at the desk smiling. Crack my knuckles. (laughs) Keystrokes, slugs hitting paper, these nearly extinct sounds are the daily soundtrack at Philly Typewriter. Crammed in the building's 2,000 square feet are a showroom, a service and restoration workshop, and a basement that's a mix of storage facility and typewriter graveyard. Keeping an eye on the sales floor filled with machines that visitors are encouraged to go for a spin around the keyboard on is Bill Rhoda, the shop's co-owner. Believe it or not, this is a growth industry once again. We just celebrated our sixth anniversary as a brick and mortar. There's eight of us now here at the shop trying to keep up with this ever-increasing demand. Like many who come into the store, it was discovering an old family typewriter, his mom's, that sparked Rhoda's interest in the machines. He says a fair amount of customers are people who've had enough of our screen-soaked present. It's a lot of people that are on digital burnout. It's a lot of people that want to get back to something real, something patient, and something that will last. I think that's what people are really appreciating again about the typewriter. He may be onto something. There's grandpa's watch, your mom's jewelry, but modern family heirlooms are lacking. I think about legacy a lot, and, you know, when I'm in my 70s, what do I get to pass down? Like flip phone? We don't have things that are real with stories and legends to them anymore. While people were hunkering down during COVID, they started cleaning out attics and going through basements. Amidst the clutter, Rhoda says, They found Great Aunt Ruth's typewriter, and they said, Oh my God, this is part of my family. This is my legacy. Oh my God, she used this in the office back in, you know, and they brought it in, and they wanted to restore it and venerate it. The other co-owner of Philly Typewriter, Brian Kravitz, agrees. The last few years took a toll, but they undeniably helped the business. During the pandemic, everybody and their brother got their typewriter out of the back room, dusted it off, said, I want to write the great American novel on a typewriter. And they brought it in to be repaired. At age 74, Kravitz is still working in the field he loves and initially trained in back in the mid-1970s. As I say to them, I'm a one-trick pony. I fix IBM selectors, which is very rare, but that's what I do. A couple generations ago, typewriter mechanics and their knowledge weren't hen's teeth. But now, Kravitz says nearly all of his professional peers have hung up their tools or are gone. In a bid to fight extinction, he leads an apprenticeship program at the store. Let's say you live in Ames, Iowa. You spend time with us. You really get to understand how this is working, why it's working, and take your skills back to Ames, Iowa, where there's a, a, a man that had a business for the last 50 years, but, you know, he's 80 years old. So far, the program hasn't brought in anybody from Iowa, but a few locals are studying the Selectric under Kravitz, including 26-year-old Rose Yaloa. I am a novice IBM Selectric mechanic, and I'm also the parts distribution coordinator for Philly Typewriter. She's closing in on the halfway mark of the four-year apprenticeship program and says it's an odd combination of childhood fancy and grown-up profession. When I saw this place passing by, it reminded me of how much I was interested in typewriters as a kid, and I just took a chance. Ever since then, it's kind of awoken, like, my inner child of whimsy and then the fun parts of being an adult of figuring out puzzles and logical thinking. 
Among the people buzzing in and out of the store on this Saturday is software professional Trevon Kaiser. Turns out it's his lucky day. I had heard about the apprenticeship program that they had. They only take in a few students a year, so last time I asked, I knew that there was no availability. And I just decided to come in today to see if anything was going on, and by luck, they were able to bring me in. As the effort to save this electric skill set gets a new recruit, co-owners Kravitz and Rhoda are performing some Frankenstein magic on a machine that belonged to Kate DeMassey's mother. Once that clutch gets up to a certain speed... There. It went on. Kick on? It kicked on. How cool is that? It lives. Yeah. That motor has been asleep for a very long time. That's really cool that it does Like nearly all the machines that come into the shop, there are memories attached to DeMassey's. So my mom, back in the probably 70s and 80s, she used to type a lot of term papers for people at Washington College in Maryland. I can remember her clackety-clack typing in the middle of the night to type the papers for a little extra cash. She brought it in to see if it could be fixed because a nine-year-old relative is interested in having one. If you're at a loss for why a digital native nine-year-old is jonesing for a typewriter, you're not alone. Why do you think a nine-year-old in this day and age wants a typewriter? I have no idea. I was wondering, I asked him the same thing. I guess it's sort of this fascination. Maybe she's a throwback to my mom. (laughs) As they say, Christmas comes but once a year... After the family machine came back to life, DeMassey had a change of heart about giving it to a child. I think once this one's fixed, I might just keep it and we'll find something else for my brother's granddaughter. Spoiler alert. Kid, I was there, and odds are good Santa is bringing you a different machine from the family typewriter. Of course, this will stay just between us. For Studio 2, I'm Matt Gillum. That was our Curiosities correspondent and WHYY host, Matt Gillum. You like that title? I love I just that came title. Up with that. that was good. You laughed when he, they, uh, the intro, they said they were archaic machines. I did, absolutely. We are archaic people. I apparently. know, <laughs> I know. My mom was a huge typist and used to type my papers. What did you say, 100 words got, a minute? Yeah, she was fast. She was wow. super fast. I want to see that in action. You got to see it. Her fingers move. You can't even really <laughs> it's see blur. it. It's a blur. Well, uh, that wraps up our show today. Yeah, who made the show today? Who are our producers? Our producers, Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. And from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I am Cherry Gregg. And I am Avi Wolfman Aaron. Thank you for joining us. Yeah.